Welcome to the universe. Here we are in a coffee shop. Earth. The Milky Way. It's pretty big. But there are things out there that are so big, the word big doesn't even work anymore. The universe is enormous, on scales unimaginable to mankind. In this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and Dan explore the possibility that there are things too big for the Big Bang. Do you like to be scared? Do you like to have your head split open by mind-boggling concepts and huge, enormous astronomical things? If so, this episode of Good Heavens is for you. Welcome to a universe very few people know anything about. Contemplate the hugeness and the vastness of the cosmos with Wayne and Dan on this episode of Good Heavens. Good Heavens! It is another episode of Good Heavens, and today we are talking about stuff that is just too big for the Big Bang. Wayne, what in the world? What, what is this? Is this? Can we get our brains around this stuff, or, or, or is this way out of our, our, our field of view? Can we know these things? What's going on here? Hi, Dan. Uh, it's good to be with Good Heavens again, and we're going to try to imagine the unimaginable and uh, imagine the really big things in the universe. Very, I don't even know, can you, is big doesn't even work, does it? Big is uh, inadequate. Uh, big doesn't even work. I don't, I don't think it works. Um, but before we start, this is going to be kind of technical. Not, we don't want to keep it too terribly, we want to keep it simple. Because I think anybody can really, on a simple level, understand this stuff. Um, it is complex. The mathematics behind it is complex. But the concept of it is really not, I think, Wayne, right? There's just... Big things out there that astronomers did not anticipate, A, right, and that the big things are moving. You know, it's like a theory of elephants, right? Elephants only move about 10 to 15 miles an hour top speed, and then you go to the Serengeti and you find an elephant going at 100 miles an hour, it just, or herds of elephants traveling at hundreds of miles an hour. It right. just doesn't make any sense. So that's kind of what we're dealing with, right? Um, but throughout our broadcast, we're going to be talking about uh, lights, galaxies, quasars, gamma ray burst objects and so as we're talking just picture these things like lights on christmas on a string of christmas lights and that will be helpful a helpful metaphor because the distances that we're going to be talking about just imagine you know you're unpacking the christmas lights and you're rolling the christmas lights down the hallway and getting them all straightened out Um, that's what we're talking about it'll be helpful to understand that the distances that we're speaking about are in relation to a length of a christmas tree light string that makes sense? Right. Does that sound so, like a good idea? Yeah, that's good. So only, uh, I would say God stretched out the Christmas lights in God, this case. Right. So because these are distances only he could reach. So these um, are these are Christmas lights of enormous length. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, far more than any, any large city puts out in their Christmas tree displays. Yeah. Um, so let's define uh, for everybody a couple of terms so everybody's uh, on board with this. First of all, let's begin with the light year. I mean, we, we assume that maybe people know about this, but but a light year is pretty easy to understand. Why don't you explain what a light year is? Yeah, the, a light year is the distance that light travels in one year, and in miles it would end up to be about 
trillion miles, or about nine trillion kilometers. So light travels, a light particle wave travels at 186,000 miles per second. Per second. Right. And in one year, that little particle will have gone about six trillion miles. Right. So it's a measure of distance. Distance. So just, just keep in mind that one light year is six trillion miles. So and, and another unit for distance astronomers use a lot is called the parsec. Which is this, uh, parsec is three and a quarter light years. Okay, so a parsec is 3.25, 3.26 light years. And then there's this thing we'll be talking about briefly, a mega parsec. Right, so mega means million, just like with the metric units. So mega parsec is a million times, uh, greater. times uh, 3.26, so 3.26 million uh, Light years. Light years. Yeah, so a megaparsec is 3.26 million light years. So those are some basic distances, if you can get your head around 6 trillion miles. Right. Um, also, we're going to be talking about two terms called heterogeneity and homogeneity. And and these relate to what what is commonly known in cosmology as the cosmological principle. So... They're, it's pretty easy to understand. Basically, what is hetero and homogeneity, Wayne? So homogeneity is about a, a constant density. So the idea is that if you looked at a small part of the universe, it may not be a, con, a, a constant density, but if you look at a big enough chunk of the universe over a big enough scale, as you go out in bigger and bigger distances, the universe should be overall uh, with constant density. So if you go to uh, Costco, and uh, you know one Costco in Arizona is the same as one in Dallas, y- there's some room to meander about, but, right. but pretty much the volume of stuff they have in Costco is going to be the same wherever you go. Right, or another good uh, idea of, homo- of homogeneous, Dan, is a, it would be like if you bought some milk, and it was not homogeneous, <laughs> you would not want to drink it. No, no, if it was not homogenized. So the the, uh, the astronomers assume from Big Bang Theory that the universe is homogeneous if you look at big enough chunks of it. Right, so it's like going to a Costco, finding the stuff. But when what we're talking about is going into a Costco and it being so stuffed, there's no room to walk around. And people are like, well, how, how in the world did all this stuff get into a Costco. I mean, that, maybe that's not a, a, the best analogy, but, but they're finding things in the most remotest part of the universe that just should not be there. There's just too much stuff out there uh, to, to be explained by current cosmological theories. So that homogeneity is the expectation that the universe has a, a, a uh, uniform density throughout uh, the larger scales. Okay, so uh, the cosmological principle is just that. It assumes a uniform density, correct? So, right. Okay, so they're expecting to find, when they go out into the larger scales of space, uniformity. Right. Okay, um, but they're not finding this. They're right. finding strings. Well, again, we're going back to our Christmas tree light string. They're finding these enormous, I don't even think that word works, these enormous strings of galaxies, of quasars, and of gamma ray burst objects. So let's break down. Everybody knows what a galaxy is. It's a swirling mass of gas and dust and stars and probably planets. Now we know more about that. Uh, but we might want to explain quasi or uh, quasars 
and uh, gamma ray burst objects. So a quasar first. What is a quasar? Right. Well, let me let me start with uh, a little bit about galaxies versus stars. When we look up in the sky, we see stars at night. But if you're looking a, a long distance away, past the, all the objects we can see with our eyes, you're going to be seeing mostly galaxies, not stars. Mm-hmm. And every galaxy is hundreds of thousands or millions of stars, uh, maybe more. So galaxies uh, make clusters. Everything in the universe is moving. And so back in the, starting in the 1970s, they started uh, mapping galaxies. Okay. And they were trying to figure out how fast they were moving and where are they going. If they're moving, where are they all going? So that's another amazing thing, that these huge objects, these massive objects, are moving at such a high rate of speed. So galaxies aren't just spinning independently of themselves. They're also moving in relation to something else. Yes. Okay. So our... Uh, lo- we have a local group of ga- neighboring galaxies that our galaxy is a part of. You've heard of the Andromeda galaxy, and it's uh, the Andromeda and, and our galaxy are sort of moving toward each other at 40 kilometers per second. Okay. And they're in a group, and that group is moving at uh, about uh, 500 kilometers per second. So let me get this straight. There is a group of galaxies moving together like a herd of elephants. Uh, at 500 kilometers a second. That's an astounding thing. Right. Now, they know this because of the what we call the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's the stable, that's the stable background light of the early universe that doesn't move. Yeah, it's, it's almost totally constant in every direction, and so it's a good thing to kind of measure... Uh, measure distance by and, and velocity so when, when a certain group of things in the space is moving a certain way you can it's a good way to kind of make your baseline so for for our for our discussion here though it's just fascinating to know that a huge group of galaxies is moving that's just isn't that mind-blowing enough you know, you, we could just stop there and go, <laughs> yeah. all these galaxies. So the local group, there's a local group, and that's what our Milky Way and Andromeda are a part of, a little herd of galaxies moving towards something. Right. So the uh, so that's the small group of galaxies. Right. So you wanna, we want to go bigger than that, though, right? Right. So there's another group of galaxies called the Virgo Cluster, and our local group and the Virgo cluster are moving toward another much bigger cluster called the Hydra Centaurus supercluster. So there's a pack elephants over here going in one direction, pack elephants over here going in another direction. These huge herds of galaxies moving towards something else. So we have local group, small group of galaxies, Virgo cluster, a larger group of galaxies, and they're moving. And then and imagine another a group of elephants, and those elephants are ten times the size of the first elephants. <laughs> and now the, the, the group of the ten times scale elephants, that group is moving toward an even bigger cluster with even bigger elephants. So forget Hannibal crossing the Alps. This is uh, with elephants. This is uh, elephants on a grand scale, far bigger than, we, than taxonomy will allow. Far bigger than uh, 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 biologists and uh, zoologists would allow for the motion of these things. So let's recap these massive groups of galaxies moving. So we have our local group. Yeah, our local group. We're in that group. And a neighbor group is the Virgo cluster. And we're both moving toward the Hydra Centaurus supercluster. 
And this Those are the ten times the size elephants. Yeah, and then yeah. the Hydra Centaurus supercluster is part of a bigger cluster called Norma. And wow. Then, then there's a, Norma is part of a bigger cluster called Laniakea. And that is, I love that name, and you pointed this out to me. I think it's fantastic. Laniakea is Hawaiian for immense heavens. Immense heavens. Almost like good heavens, right? Good heavens. Good damn. heavens. A supercluster of superclusters. Yeah, yes. it's a, it's a. So all of this stuff, all of these massive clusters of galaxies, are moving towards something. Right. And what is blowing away, and all of these, well, the bigger ones, defy, or seem to suggest that the cosmological principle needs to be reevaluated. Uh, so now we're going to get into the size of these things because this is where this is where the science gets really interesting. So the Lanikia supercluster is just. Also, just one of the largest objects in the universe, but it pales in comparison to, to the big ones that, that, that have been discovered since 1991. Right, so Laniakea is our, our home supercluster, if you will, and uh, it's been described as about 500 million light years across. Okay, so jot that down as we go through this. Because 500 million light years. 500 million light years. Remember, a, a light year is 6 trillion miles. So, so talk about 500 million times 6 trillion. I don't even know if you want to do the math. But so the Lanikia supercluster is 5 billion, no, 5, five, million, five million, million light years, light years across. 500 million light 500 years. million light years across. So think of a, 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 light, a string of Christmas lights 500 million light years long. So the, the estimate is something like 100,000 galaxies in that supercluster. 100,000 lights on this string. And so, and every galaxy is many, many stars. Yeah. So, so that's mind blowing. We could stop there, but, but, but we're not Lania going to. Laniakea is not big. It's not on, on astronomical scales. Laniakea fits inside the boundary of the cosmological principle, right? Yes. Laniakea. So that so there's a boundary in current cosmological theories. There's a boundary. There's a size limit. Einstein's theory says that. Things could only be about a billion point two, a billion and a quarter uh, light years in size. That's the limit of the cosmological principle. So yeah, they debate about what that limit is. Dan. It's debatable, right? It's but, flexible. But what the the problem is this: when these clusters get so large, even in if you say the universe is 14, 14 billion years old, even in that time, there may not be time. For these clusters to be accelerated up to their speed, right? So, so, so gravity seems to be inadequate for something of this size, even if you believe the universe is billions of years old. Right, because as we're going to see in a minute, these objects are not only transcend the cosmolo- the limit of the cosmological principle in terms of the theory of size. It transcends how there's not enough time to get these things moving. There's not enough time for these things to have formed naturally, given where they are found in the universe. So there's two two big problems there. But let's talk about some of the bigger things. The Laniakea is nothing compared to what we're about to get into. Yes. Uh, before we get into this, I want to read um, <clears throat> Rebecca Valerius. She's a, she's a co-host of Mama Bear's Apologetics. Check it out, Mama Bear Apologetics. Um, she is a G.K. Chesterton fan, and as we were talking about this stuff, she said, well, you need to, you need to have this in there. So I said, okay, shout yeah. out to Rebecca Valerius, Mama Bears, uh, and G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and uh, so, But this it's, it's is a wonderful quote. 
Uh, now, Chesterton was a theologian, uh, a writer, an apologist, and uh, he too was grappling with uh, the cosmology of the time, the sciences that were developing. And uh, he compares two ways of knowing the universe. One is a poetic understanding of the universe. How does a poet want to understand the universe? And how does a scientist or a, log a logician, uh, somebody who just wants to understand the universe from a mathematical perspective? And so he compares the two, and this is what Chesterton says. He says, the general fact is simple, he writes in the book Orthodoxy. Poetry, he says, is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. In other words, the poet can handle infinities and loves and delights in them. Uh, reason, and what, what, what he means by reason is the, the purely logical, mathematical, scientific. Uh, not reason in and of itself, but just a, a non-poetic, logical, linear way of thinking. He says, reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. The result is mental exhaustion. <laughs> he says, yeah... He says, like the physical exhaustion of a meticulous 16th century painter, Mr. Hans Holbein, who was very detailed in the things that he made in his portraits. So Chesterton says, to accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. And that's what we're trying to do. And I can testify from my years and years <laughs> in college that science can lead to exhaustion. Yes, it does. Okay. So this is what I love. Chesterton says this. He says, the poet only desires exaltation and expansion a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I tied this together with a quote from Carl Sagan from his 1977 book, Dragons of Eden. And, and this quote from Sagan reminds me of what Chesterton says. Sagan, talking about the evolutionary development of man, says, only through the deaths of an immense number of slightly maladapted organisms are we, brains and all, here today. And I said, perhaps those untold countless multitudes of slightly maladapted organisms perished as a result of trying to understand the universe. Yeah. <laughs> or trying to get the universe in their heads. So what we're about to talk about is head splitting, because we have no human level of comp comprehending these distances. All right, so let's start over, beginning with the, the Laniakea, 500 million light years in length of a Christmas string of Christmas lights. Let's go to the next one. Should we talk about the boss? Yeah, let's go to the boss. <laughs> Big B-O-S-S. -S. The boss, uh, what is it? Uh, What's the official boss name? Boss actually stands for a, boss actually st is a acronym for a astronomy research project. Okay. It, it stands for Baryon Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey. Okay. Which probably doesn't mean much to anybody, but uh, okay. But so, it makes for a neat acronym. Yeah. So they found a uh, like a wall of galaxies, a cluster, a super cluster, super cluster of galaxies. The Boss Great Wall. And uh, it's about 1.2 billion light years long. Okay. So the Boss Wall is the upper limit of the cosmological principle. It yeah. fits within the universe. Um, now, what's interesting is that when it was discovered in 2016, a lot of popular media were reporting this object as being the largest structure in the universe. So if you Google boss wall, a lot of the articles that are written about it say that it was the largest structure in the universe discovered at the time. And this was in 2016, March of 2016. And I was looking, as we were doing the research, and I told you about this, it's kind of funny, I was looking for this. 
boss is not the largest object in the universe. Right, and Dan, you know, when you once someone publishes it this way, then other people pick it up and say the same thing. Yeah. And the the, the misinformation tends tends to quickly multiply into multiple websites. That's what happened to the boss wall because yeah. the biggest thing in the universe was discovered like four years ago. Right. And it's it's so it was really interesting. And I looked and I looked and I looked for a corrective article. Uh, that explained that the boss wall is not the biggest thing in the universe. I couldn't find one. Yeah, you can't find it. You can't find it, which is really funny, and I wonder why that is. Anyway, so boss is at the upper limit of the cosmological principle size. Uh, 1.2 billion gets you into the cosmological principle. It doesn't violate anything, although it's coming very close. But that would be fine, but there are things that are a little bigger than boss. Absolutely. All right, what's the next thing? I have the next thing. Um, Actually, way before boss... There was something called the Close Camposano Large Quasar Group, discovered in 1991, and that was two billion, two billion, two billion light years across. Two billion. That really started the chink in the armor of the cosmological principle. Right. An article you sent me from a Scientific American in 1987 was discussing this problem. That in 91 they found something that that far and away exceeded the cosmological principle limit. Yeah, in, in 1987, which is 30 years ago, Dan, is when I started to get interested in this. And uh, they had, they knew that these clusters of galaxies were moving towards something, and they didn't know what it was. So they called it the Great Attractor. <laughs> the Great Attractor, some big thing out there somewhere, is pulling all these galaxies. Not to be confused with the Great Tractor, which there are yeah. many of them in Texas, but the Great Attractor, <laughs> something out there is pulling all of... Something's causing the motion. I mean, when astronomers see something in motion, they assume something else is causing it. Right. Uh, so what's causing the motion? This gets back to Thomas Aquinas and the prime mover. What's the prime mover of yeah, all this what's mass? What's the prime mover? <laughs> yeah, right. How did it all start? So we have the uh, we have the boss. That comes in at 1.2 billion. We have the closed Camposano large quasar group, which comes in at a cool 2 billion light years in length. And then in 2003... Uh, astronomers found the Sloan Great Wall. Uh, Princeton astronomers announced this. It was 1.37 billion light years. We, if, you're, if you're keeping track here, if you're keeping score, uh, BOSS is 1 billion, 1.2 billion. Uh, the um, Sloan Great Wall is 1.3, and the uh, Camposano, closed Camposano, is 2 billion. All right, so we're at 2 billion. Right, now, if, if we haven't... Uh Stress your brains too far already. We're going to get bigger. So. It's going to get bigger. Uh, in 2011, there was another group of 34 quasars strung together, 2.5 billion light years in length. Right. So uh, we're just 2.5 billion light years in length. We have exceeded the cosmological principle threshold limit. We've doubled it. We've gone beyond Yeah, it. so let, let's talk about quasars a little bit. So quasars originally got the name because it means the, quasi, the term means quasi-stellar objects. So quasi-stellar meaning like a star. So quasars are very, very uh, high-energy objects. They give off a lot of light, and uh, now they are believed to be black holes. But they're not sure how quasars can form. One idea for how they form it would be uh, two galaxies colliding. See, two galaxies could collide and just the stars would just pass right by each other. Yeah. But most galaxies are believed to have black holes at their center. 
So if you have two black holes that come near each other, there's bound to be fireworks. And that's what that's so what the, fire, the, the black holes would merge, and they think that could become a. And we actually, uh, science just this year, last year, discovered that black holes, they believe black holes do clash, do count and encounter one another, yes. and that's what the LIGO. Uh, instrument had determined the gravitational waves. So when two black holes collide, they make ripples in the fabric of space-time that are uh, detected. We, we can detect them now, and we have detected them. Um, and just a couple of months ago, Hubble Space Telescope actually, they believe, took a picture of colliding black holes, and then the LIGO detected the gravity waves. So that's the first time in history that we've ever seen a, a collision of black holes and detected their gravitational waves. It's like throwing a rock into a placid lake and having the ripples come to the shore. By the time they get to the shoreline, they're very weak, but you can detect them. And so that's what we're doing in space. So, so black holes colliding. So we're, 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 we have quasars, uh, we have uh, black holes, and we're still getting, we're not done with two and a half billion. We're, we're now just uh, uh, cranking up the scale. And this is what you emailed me a couple of months ago. You were at a conference recently, and you heard of something for the first time in your long tenure with astronomy, the large quasar group, the huge large quasar group. Yes. And it's 73 quasars. How big is this right. string so of quasars? You mentioned the cluster of 34 quasars. Right. At about the same distance, not that far away, is another group of quasars, about 73 of them strung along a line. And... Uh, uh, this is called the huge, large quasar, quasar group. group. I love just, I call the it huge, huge large. large. Huge large. It's like, scientists aren't that creative with their names. No, but lines, that's but like a cheeseburger at yeah, Five Guys or the something. Huge large. Yeah, give me a huge large. Right. I want one of those, yeah. This one is like four billion light years across in distance. Four billion light uh, years. Dan, long. I'd like to read a quote, and this is from a. Uh, an astronomy journal from the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So this is top-notch stuff. Top-notch source. All right. And this is uh, their summary about this lar huge, large quasar group. Bring it on. It says, a large quasar group of particularly large size and high membership has been identified in the DR7 QSO catalog. That means qu quasar catalog of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. It has characteristic size about 500 megaparsecs, proper size present epoch, longest dimension about 1,240 megaparsecs, membership of 73 quasars, and mean redshift Z equals 1.27. Now let me just interject. Z is how they measure redshift. It's red, how far away something is. Redshift is how they measure distance. Right. So 1.27 is a very large redshift. Okay. Very far away. So this huge LQG appears to be the largest structure currently known in the early universe. Its size suggests incompatibility with the Yadev et al. scale of homogeneity for the concordance cosmology and this challenges the assumption of the cosmological principle. So in plain language, we have found something that should not be there. Exactly. And so, uh, that's, that's mind-blowing to me. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. And I have, uh, that's not the biggest thing in the universe, Wayne, apparently, right? That is. That would be big enough to blow my mind. That, but we could stop yeah. there, but there is something actually that is twice that size. Yeah. Called, and I pointed this out to you the other day, the Hercules... 
Corona Borealis. Now, those are the two constellations in which uh, this structure was found. The Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall. Are you ready for the dimensions? This thing is 10 billion light years across. And, yeah. And it's galaxies, right? Yeah. Not, not quasars. This thing is a, a 10 billion light year string of galaxies. I want to read you a quote from the authors of the study that found this. This is, okay. this is fantastic because this takes in all the other stuff we've been talking about. They say this, quote, Several large structures, including the Sloan Great Wall, the huge large quasar group, and the large gamma ray burst cluster, referred to as the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall, appeared to exceed the maximum structural size predicted by universal inflationary models. The existence of very large structures such as these might necessitate cosmological model modifications. Yeah. <laughs> we might have to change our paradigm yeah. <laughs> when, we, when we see these things. So let me correct myself and say that, that they detected uh, the Great Wall, the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall, through gamma ray bursts. I wrote an article about gamma ray bursts once on the Answers in Genesis website. And they're like a flashlight of the universe, like a like a lighthouse. No, they're more like no. a, a a brief burst, only a few seconds long, and but they are at such a distance. Dan, when you have something that's on the scale of 10 billion light years across, how do you measure this scale? Yes. The only thing energetic enough to measure something of that size is gamma ray bursters. Gamma ray burster objects are a mysterious thing. We're not sure what they are. But they very briefly give off an intense burst of gamma rays and x-rays, and then they kind of glow real hot for a while. And uh, there's... Uh, so scientists were mapping gamma ray burster objects, and they found that there's a lot of them in one area of the sky, and that's the uh, her- and that turns that's out the- to be the Hercules Corona Borealis. So you need a lot of, in other words, to make to fuel these, you know, like you need a batteries for a flashlight, you need a you need a, a an outlet for power source. These things are so powerful. Astronomers are assuming there's a great deal of mass out there that's fueling these bursts because as i understand it a gamma ray burst has one single gamma ray burst lasting only a few seconds yeah puts out more energy than our sun does in its entire lifetime yeah so these things are immensely powerful and they're out there everywhere just just shooting stuff out there so we have the uh we have uh satellites out there that can detect these things and so astronomers had detected this group, as you say, of these gamma ray bursts. Uh, but it's funny that we don't know exactly what causes them. Right. The, the objects themselves that produce these things are as mysterious as, are as, mysterious as garden gnomes. So, we just don't, right. we just damn, don't know, you know what they are. Astronomers detect these amazing objects out in space, and they have to really stretch their brains in order to imagine anything powerful enough to do this. But one, one theory that they have on gamma ray bursters says that you have a really very massive star, a giant star, and if it would uh, collapse into a black hole and explode in a supernova, both at the same time, that, yeah, both yeah. at the same time, it collapses and explodes at the same time, 
and that could be a, a gamma ray burst. And that, that's what happens to your head as you try to figure that that's out. My, yeah, that's yeah, what that's, happens that's what, what I try to imagine. That's yeah. what uh, G.K. G. Chesterton said. So, uh, Dan, I have a, another quote about these, uh, uh, the Hercules Corona Borealis. Okay, uh, fire away. And this is from the <laughs> fire away. Get the, it. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. This is from the the scientific paper that reported it. Okay. And it describes it in terms of the constellation names. Dan, you you'll relate to this. Okay. Okay. It says the GRB cluster at Z equals two appears to identify the presence of a large a larger angular structure that covers almost one eighth of the sky. This encompasses. Half of the constellations of Bootes, Draco, and Lyra, and all of the constellations of Hercules and Corona Borealis. That's amazing. This structure has been given the popular name of the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall, or Her CRBGW, if you want. <laughs> Her CRB. So this this is like Christmas lights that just go around the. You know, when you you have those big Christmas lights you see set up on these huge tree displays in these cities and these giant malls. The guys are up on ladders and they're just pulling the string off and it just keeps coming and it just keeps coming yeah. and it just keeps coming. That's the Hercules Corona so Borealis. There's, there's more to the quote here. It's, we estimate the size of her CRBGW to be about 2,000 to 3,000 megaparsecs across. Remember what a megaparsec is. Yeah, so the um, 3,000 is basically about 10 billion light years. Yeah. And so a uh, few limits on this radial thickness exist other than because it appears to be confined to... Z from 1.6 to 2.1 redshift range. This large size makes the structure inconsistent with current inflationary universal models because it is larger than the roughly 100 megaparsec limit thought to signify the end of greatness at which large-scale structure ceases. So it's another fancy so in the way. Big Bang Theory. We should stop seeing bigger and bigger things right. after after uh, 100 megaparsecs. We're actually going in the opposite direction. We're actually finding bigger and bigger things. That's right. And so what you just said in, in the man-in-the-street language is that current Big Bang theory models uh, and the cosmological principle are not sufficient to explain why these things are as big as they are and where they are because the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall is some 10 billion uh, light years away from us and that's just an early part of the universe where there's just not enough time for something that large to have developed and for it to be doing what it is with all that high energy. Um, I wanted to... uh, uh, mention a quote I, I read in, uh, from Stephen Hawking. I, I know this is a popular one. He's often quoted as saying this. I see it in books all the time. It's, he asks, what is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? So what, what is it that is powering these things? Now, certainly there must be an object. The universe has physical objects that, that uh, are at the root of why this motion is occurring. But what ultimately I think, Wayne, is 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 fascinating to me is that Christ created this by the word you know the Psalm 33 6 says that by the breath of his mouth all the hosts were created and uh, it reminds me of a quote in Job and I want you to read what you found in Isaiah Um, God asks Job you know Job has been asking all these questions of God and God comes to Job finally at the end of the book and he says to Job do you know the ordinances of the heavens 
or fix their rule over the earth? I, I, you know, and then obviously right. the answer is no. <laughs> Even with what we do know, there is so much more that when we when we discover these large objects, uh, that just that's really neat. But it raises so many more questions in terms of our own assumptions about our own cosmological models. The more we learn, the more we learn that we how much we don't know. Right. What was your uh, what was so, your verse yeah, from Isaiah? I found it Isaiah forty five twelve was neat. Says it is uh, now. This is God talking in Isaiah forty-five twelve. Uh-huh. It says, "It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts." That's neat. So, God claims He did it. And uh, if something is if something is too big for Big Bang theory or for any theory we can imagine, it's not too big for God. No, I the. Uh in fact, I, I sent you something I had written on this, is reflecting on the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall. Hercules, in mythology, was known as the strong man. He had to go through difficult labors, and uh, he, he's the quintessential mythological strong man. In Psalm 19, the Bible likens the sun itself to a strong man, and you think, what kind of man, what kind of being would be able to create these enormous cosmological structures. Only Christ and his infinite strength, his omnipotence could do that. And so the strong man, uh, Hercules Corona Borealis, because Corona Borealis is a constellation that looks like a crown. So you think of a strong man (laughs) with a crown, and of course Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Um, But it reminded me of of a different aspect of Jesus' omnipotence. You know, when he came to earth... The one who created these great walls and all of these lights, himself, the strength that it took to go through Calvary and to be crucified is a, is a kind of strength that is literally out of this world. You know, what kind of strong man can build a wall of galaxies 10 billion light years across within it an extraordinarily powerful, have those bursts within that as well, and then submit himself to the cruelty and mockery of of the Roman officials. Um, it is the most powerful kind of light uh, that we know of, and it's invisible to a world. You know, John says that, uh, what does John say? That, 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 that Jesus created the world, the cosmos. Uh, that's the Greek word. Jesus created the cosmos, but the cosmos did not know him. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Right. You know, that's so what, I've often thought, Dan, uh, Amazing. Uh, Jesus did not allow him. He did not have to allow himself to be crucified. No. He certainly had power to stop what was what the the Romans were unjustly doing. Right. But he voluntarily went through that for our sake. Yeah. Um, Dan, I'd like to get into some of the uh, proposed ideas to explain this big, big, big. Yeah. How, how is how is modern so, cosmology dealing with these super enormous, ginormous structures? When scientists measure these big clusters, they go through a lot of uh, statistical analysis and, and mathematical effort to make sure that there really is a cluster. So they look at how how many objects are within a certain circle uh, and do they really influence each other? Are they moving together? And that sort of thing. So, so uh, it's not arbitrary saying that these are clusters. There's really reason to say they are. Clusters. These are the things that we've been quoting from are peer-reviewed journals. So this is not like one guy's idea 
these are peer-reviewed, and anybody can go and look at the data and uh, determine for themselves if the, these claims are accurate. Right, and so let me just go through some of the ideas that have been proposed. Okay. Uh, so one idea is called coagulating dark energy. Now, we haven't talked about dark energy. Dark energy is supposed to be, it's totally theoretical, really, not really any verification of it, but it's, it's the idea of, of an energy that's making space expand. It's the, the universe seems to be expanding in an accelerating way. Yeah, and, and we dark energy is supposed to explain that. However, we call it dark energy because there is no visible particle that has ever been detected that would uh, suggest the reality of dark energy. It is only a theoretical explanation. But here's the thing about this is that dark energy is normally thought of as very uniform yeah. everywhere in the universe, but this is a proposing that dark energy is not uniform, and that's what's making okay. these clusters. All right, so when, when dark energy is dark and you don't know what it is, you can pretty much, it's pretty much an elastic fill-in. In other words, this dark energy cluster, if you might say. Yeah, got it, got so it. That's the idea. So another idea that's thrown out there is uh, maybe our theory of gravity is inadequate at these vast distances. Well, we already know that there's an incongruity between Newton's theory of gravity and Einstein's theory of gravity. Uh, right, so now they're asking... Is Einstein's theory of gravity adequate? Maybe we need something even at better larger, than Einstein's theory. At larger scales, we need something else entirely. It's in yeah, the, yeah. So, so that's an. But I think that's the issue of time. That the size of these clusters, even in billions of years of time, is not enough to accelerate and form these clusters. No. Yeah, that it, it seems inadequate. Uh, mm -hmm. and then, so that's another question: Is is our gravity working uh, like it should? Then another idea has been thrown out is could dust and stars in our own galaxy be somehow confusing the data about measuring these distant objects? Yeah, so the, the other problem is trying to get outside of our own, uh, our own point of view, literally, on Earth to see if whether or not we're, there's something here locally affecting what we're seeing, uh, which is an interesting uh, parallel with theoretical cosmology. How much does one's own worldview affect what it is you're looking at? Right, and certainly our perspective in space matters a lot, but astronomers already go through a lot of effort to make sure that this is not complicating the measurements. Yeah. So I kind of doubt that that's it, but you never know what we might uh, These are, But those are, those are the possible theoretical explanations for what we're... Uh, another idea is uh, an idea that's been called the uh, fract fractal cosmology. Yeah, you showed me so, that. Dan, you know about, uh, if you see the it's graphics like, of a fractal. Yeah, it repeats. Uh, when, you, when you look at a fractal graphic, at a, at a small scale, it looks the same if you zoom in as if you zoom out and look at a big scale. It's like a repeating it's, pattern. It's a repeating structure that occurs on multiple distance scales. Okay. So that's the idea. Some people are exploring that idea. And, you know, I think it's good, Dan, when astronomers explore uh, new, new models and Absolutely. things other than the Big Bang Theory. Well, and two, conceptually, we've talked about this before, but a model can become so entrenched that it becomes the reality itself, and everybody tries to shoehorn different data into the model to make the model, to save the model's face. Right. And really what's, what's necessary is a model shift. Uh, a paradigm shift, as Thomas Kuhn talked about in the, the revolution, the science—I forgot the name of the book—but but the idea that we—it seems like we're at a at a point in theoretical cosmology and astronomy that we need a new model. We need to start building new models. Okay, so Dan, I, 
let me let me propose my own crazy idea here, and this may be a. It's just we're a, all about crazy on good heavens. This is my crazy, crazy good heavens, idea. Wayne. I didn't know you were going to drop a new theory on okay, me. Okay, so instead of saying that these clusters were accelerated into place and accelerated to these speeds, what if we just say they were created initially going at these speeds? They were formed when they were created. Yeah. So in, they didn't have to come into existence by gravity over time. They were they started this way. Yeah, because the problem, the assumption is that all of these gradually developed after the Big Bang. And I think, I'm with you, I think it makes better sense to say these were created in place. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been thrown out as an idea, too, for Big Bang Theory, but it doesn't fit the Bang Theory because you have something like the Hercules Corona Borealis. There's, there's no way that this makes sense coming out of the Big Bang on right. something of that scale. Well, let's, uh, I, I think we've given our listeners, I, I hope their heads are still with us. I hope that uh, <laughs> nobody's head is split. I hope we've conveyed this uh, <laughs> at least in an interesting enough way for people to explore the topics. Uh, you, you're going to have an article, and we're going to link that so people can read that. I'll, I'll write something about this uh, as a follow-up. But uh, we have, I think, I think we, this is a fascinating subject to me. I wanted to wrap up something with what this made me all think about. Uh, it's, it's a lot less scientific and a lot more theological, but I think those two go hand in hand. I really do. Um, it seems like the Big Bang is not enough to fit these large objects that we've been talking right. about. At least the, the explanatory scope needs to be readjusted. So I, I say that the Big Bang is not enough to fit into the large quasar group or the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall. It's the Lord Jesus who is the stone that the models the model builders of our age have rejected. Um, He is the rock, as the scripture refers to him. He is the light of the world. Uh, These are all things the Bible calls Jesus, the light of the world, the rock, the bright and morning star, the son of righteousness, the strong man of the entire cosmos and all it contains. And as uh, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And this is the kingdom to which Jesus refers in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Jesus is like a single gamma ray burst of otherworldly light who flashes onto our earthly stage. He is the one who could incinerate our entire solar system in an instant or even roll up the entirety of the cosmos as if it were a mere scroll. In the twinkling of an eye, whoosh, the strong man with a crown could crush our little neighborhood with just a single ray of extraordinary light. But instead, he comes into it and becomes one of us. Which so is amazing. instead of blowing it all up, he's waiting for us to come to him and believe. Right. And we, instead of blowing it all up, he comes in and allows himself to be crushed and defeated. Right. And, but he doesn't stay crushed and defeated. He rises again and uh, really changes everybody else's paradigm about what it means to be a human being. Right. You know, a resurrection does not fit into secular, modernistic, scientific paradigms. No, People no, do not no. rise from the dead. And uh, the, Corona, the Corona Borealis, Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall should not exist, right? It's right. kind of like a resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> we what, need to, what's it doing out there? Yeah, what's it doing out there? Wait a minute. That shouldn't be there. Well, this is uh, this will wrap us up for another episode of Good Heavens, and we hope you enjoyed it. And Wayne and I have enjoyed it. And uh, by the way, our background ambiance has been provided by uh, Buongiorno, an Italian coffee shop here in South Lake, Texas. Come by and enjoy a cup of coffee. Uh, they have been very nice in allowing us to sit here and, and jab with a microphone on our table. Yeah. So, uh, Wayne, uh, until next time, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time on Good Heavens. Good heavens.